So in America, we have a kind of interesting tradition or interesting educational model. Every year, which we just came out of, you have a school year, right? The students go into school, and at the end of that school year, there's this lengthy summer vacation. Well, it turns out that not everybody enjoys or gets disserviced by having a lengthy vacation. Around the world, there's different educational models. Some models go all year and have just a few breaks here and there. The Japanese model is particularly interesting because Japan seems to beat us in just about everything when it comes to education. And Japan has three semesters. They have a summer, a winter, and a uh, fall. And kind of like us, we have a winter break and a spring break and a summer break. But their winter break and their spring break is twice as long. And that makes their summer break twice as small. So they have less of a summer to look forward to than this whole three-month hiatus of sun and games and fun and juvenile delinquency and forgetting everything you learned. I'm teasing about that. But they don't have as much to look forward to. But we do. We get this famous and long and somewhat infamous summer to look forward to. Now, when I was in school, I went to public school, my favorite class of the day, my favorite time in school was the lunch hour. Before that, it was actually recess, but they took that away when I hit sixth grade. That was my favorite time. And my favorite time of the year was that summer because it was so long, and it was so wonderful, and it was so restful. I longed for it every year. And then something happened every year. I would be enjoying my summer and bathing in the sun, and then I would eventually get an itch to go back to school. Anybody else get that itch? Eventually... You got tired of just mushing around on the TV all day or just playing outside from sun up to sundown. Eventually, you wanted to come back to school. Eventually, what I'm trying to say is eventually the summer, the glories of the summer died down. Something also strange happened. When school started, I started to dread. So it was weird. When I was in summer, at first, it was nice, and then I would start to long for school, and then when I was toward the end of it, I would dread coming back to class, back to school. Well... For those who have eyes to see, there's something that we can learn from this longing for summer. It's a longing for rest. But it's not like our summers, which is a letdown, but an eternal summer, eternal rest in our hearts. There's something there. And we're going to consider that more in depth as we go into the sermon. So if you could, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read verse 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we have believed We who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, therefore they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and that those whom it was first preached did not Enter because of disobedience. Again, he designated a certain day, saying in David, Today, 
After such a long time, it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he, has entered, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. So looking back to verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains to enter his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So notice that it begins with saying, therefore, since we have a promise. Now, what is a promise? Sometimes people, at least back in the old days, I don't, I don't really see them today, but they have promise rings. Anybody remember those little, little promise rings going on? What is a promise? Somebody say, I promise. What is a promise? A promise is one party telling another party, I'm going to guarantee a future reality. Isn't that true? You promise, I'm going to do this for you. I promise I'll be there for you. I promise I will keep my chastity. I promise I won't go back into the mire once more. I promise is one party telling another party a solemn oath or a vow to do something. But the point is that notice a promise is about a future reality. Nobody would promise something that they are currently doing, right? I promise I'll invite you to my house while you're at my house. Doesn't make sense, right? But if you're not at my house, then I promise that you'll come to my house. You see? A promise is about a future reality, not something that you're currently experiencing. And as such, a promise is similar to the idea of hope. In Romans chapter 8, verse 24, it says this, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Would you hope for what you already have? I hope I'll get a job. If you said in your prayer request, I hope I get a job. I hope I get promoted. I hope I become happy. I would assume that you're not happy. You don't have a job, right? Does that make sense? Because you don't hope for what you have, just like you don't promise for what you are currently receiving. Right now in this world, we walk by hope. We walk in the promise of God. Or in the words of Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are currently walking in faith in the hope of the fulfillment of God's promise. Do you see that? I have faith in the hope of the fulfillment of what God has promised me. This is similar to Abraham. Pastor Neil has been preaching through Genesis, and we've been learning about Father Abraham. And Abraham received many promises, but they were long Awaiting, and he had to long and hope and believe that God was going to give him what he had promised him. He was a stranger and a foreigner in the land that he was promised. Can you imagine? All of this is mine, and yet here I am living on a tent on it, and I don't own anything. And we all read that chapter where Abraham, when his wife died, had to go talk to pagan Canaanites to get a burial site because he didn't even have enough land to bury his wife. How many of you guys have enough land to bury your wife? You guys live in the city. Some of you have enough land to bury your wife. You don't need that much. How much land do you need? A front yard, a backyard. You need six feet. Not much. He didn't even have that. I'm saying he had more. He had less land than you do. He was walking by faith in the promises of God. And so, too, we must walk in faith in the promise of God of God, that one day we will inherit the land, that one day he will give us what he has promised us. So what has he promised us? 
Well, here's what the Lord promised us specifically in John chapter 14, verse 3. He says this, and if I go, I prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Christ left. Christ is not here. The grave is empty and he's gone. You will not find Christ walking around in some place in the world. That's a false Christ. He's gone. Where has he gone? He's gone to heaven. So if I go, which he did, he will prepare a place for you, which he is. And when he comes back, he will receive you so that you may be there also. Randy Alcorn, my favorite author, has this wonderful book called The Edge of Eternity. And in that book, he says this, everyone was made for a place and a person. And that place is heaven. And that person is Christ. Did you know that? Everybody has been made for a place and a person, and that place is heaven, and that person is Christ. And so in between the garden and the new heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven, that's where we are, in between those two great destinies, man down here is estranged from God. We do not dwell with God, and we have been separated from him. And as such, we long to be back in our homeland with our people and with our God. Most of you, as I look around this room, are Americans. So in some ways, this is your homeland, but this is also a very transient place. And so in some ways, America may maybe be your homeland, but maybe you have a home state, a motherland that you long to go back to, where your family is, where your people is. Well, ultimately, our heavenly dwelling is our real place that we belong, and God is our real home. And so man, as estranged from God, seeking to be reunited to him, longs to be with him. They have a longing, have a desire. There's a weariness of being down here. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's a question. Is anybody burdened? Does anybody feel the burden of sin, the burden of works righteousness, the burden of tiredness, period? If you do feel that burden, go to Christ. He will relieve that burden. In fact, Pilgrim's Progress was all about this burden, this burden he had on his back, that he had to go to the cross, go to Christ, and get that removed. Jesus says, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is ultimately a promise for unbelievers to come to Christ, but really you can take all your burdens. You can take all your pains. You can take all of your frustrations to that cross, and Christ will remove the burden. But he says he's going to remove the burden. He's going to remove the yoke from your neck, but he's going to put his own yoke on Christ will put his own burden on. Do you see that? I'll take that burden, but my burden, my yoke is easy and light, which implies that Christ has a burden, Christ has a yoke, but it's light, not heavy. So what is that burden? What is Christ's burden? Well, salvation is completely free. Christ frees you as a slave, and so you are free. So the burden is not one of earning your salvation, but rather the burden is one of a life of gratitude and thanksgiving as a freed slave that Christ has rescued. 
You're no longer trying to earn your salvation. You no longer have to be crippled by guilt and to shame. He's wiped that all away. And now he gives you a new life and a new burden. And that burden is simply to live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. You know anything about gratitude? Do you know anything about reciprocity? About loyalty? See, here in America, we're so isolationist. We all want to be self-made men who need no one and receive nothing. But that's not the way we were meant to be. We were meant to be people in community that rely on one another, that we don't need to receive everything so that we can all have all in ourselves and need no one, but rather we're supposed to be in community relying on each other. And that, that reliance on one another produces strong relationships of love, thankfulness, and gratitude and reciprocity. Let me give you an illustration. So previously, I lived in a not so good neighborhood. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't the best neighborhood. For you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about. And in a not so good neighborhood, especially in the east, east coast, not in the south or anything like that, you don't necessarily get the best neighbors. And so my neighbor wasn't the best, which caused me to leave. It came to a head when he, and he poured some bodily substance on my driveway three times in a row. It was time to leave. So that was my background. Neighbors pouring yucky stuff on your driveway. So I moved, and I now move in a more, less like that area. And I've been pleasantly surprised by the kindness of my neighbors no longer doing nasty stuff like that to my driveway. But I kind of expect that. I expected that if I moved anywhere, I wouldn't receive that kind of level of treatment. But I've been really surprised of just how kind they have been to me. I'll give you an example. One day, I was browsing the wonderful web of Facebook Marketplace, and I saw that somebody had a free shed. And I thought, if only I had a truck and an army of men. But I called my neighbor and asked him, what would I need to do to dismantle a shed? Just out of curiosity. Would I need a sledgehammer, a saw? What would I need? And instead of answering my question, he pulled up with his giant Ram 2500 truck with a trailer, and 12 hours later, we dismantled that shed and brought it back to my house. Now, by the way, this is an unbeliever. This is not a believer. This is an unbeliever who would lend his resources and a mass amount of his time to help me out. That was the kind of neighbor he was. Why? Because he had a moral code of being a good neighbor. And what do good neighbors do? They help out their neighbors in need. Now, generally, that looks like a cup of sugar. For this neighbor, it looked like a truck, 12 hours, and a lot of sweat. I just want you to think about that for a second. Here's an unbelieving man who would lend his time, his talent, and in some ways his money to help me. Now, does this unbeliever outshine you? If you had the time and the resource to help someone out, would you do something like that? And if he does, maybe he says something wrong. But you know, as I look around this room, I look at so many people who've actually helped me in similar ways. So many of you actually have proven that you would, in fact, do something like that. And I thank you for that. But it's not just about me. It's about everybody. Would you be that kind of neighbor who would help out someone in need, whether they're a believer or not, just because they're made in the image of God and you want to show them kindness. Well, that neighbor who helped me out, that created a relationship of thankfulness and gratitude. And so now when I see that neighbor 
and he needs some help, what do you think I'm going to do? You think I'm going to say, nah, I got better things to do. Netflix is calling my name. Not coming to your house. I'm not helping you. What kind of person would I be if that's my attitude? After he did all that for me, what would I do for him? Do you you feel that? So if he says to me, hey, can you come over and help me build something? You think I'm going to say, no, no, thank you. Of course not. That because we live, we're supposed to be people who are grateful and thankful. And then in light of that grateful and thankfulness, we find opportunities to not really repay, but to show that grateful and thankfulness to help out a neighbor when they're in need. Does that make sense? Everybody feel that? Well, here's the point of that. God has done a whole lot more for you than my neighbor has done for me. And this is what he calls us to do, is to live lives of thankfulness and gratitude to the God who saved us. And so then when God asks us to do something, and really the only thing he asks is for us to do things for our own good anyways, how much more should we live lives of gratitude and thankfulness and say, God, I will definitely serve you. I will definitely help you because you saved a sinner like me. That's the attitude that we should have, one of thankfulness and gratitude for the things that he's done for us. That is his burden, if you ever wanted to know. What is the burden of Christ? The burden of Christ is this. You as a needy slave who's been set free are now his slave. And now you get to live a life of gratitude and thankfulness, not repaying him, but being thankful to God who saved a sinner like you. It's pretty easy. It's pretty light. So we see here, back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, that there is a promise, that we have a promise, and there is a promise that remains, namely, of entering his rest. But we just saw a passage in Matthew chapter 11 that said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and we'll take that burden in which I was speaking of at some length just previously. So which is it? Do we already live in the rest of Christ, or are we seeking a future rest? Does everybody feel that tension? Have you received the rest of Christ? Are you currently feeling his burden that's light and easy, or are you still seeking a rest? And the answer is both. There's an already reality and a not yet reality. The already is the rest that we receive at salvation where we don't have to feel that burden of guilt, of that shame, of that one-way ticket to hell. We already receive that peace and that rest of salvation. And yet there's a future reality of yet remaining to enter his rest. And so we need to recognize that we are not yet in the promised land. We haven't yet made it. We haven't yet arrived. So many times we're surprised that something strange were happening to us when things don't go our way and bad things happen down here on earth. People say, God, is this the way you treat your servants? Down here on earth? Well, remember, this is not your home. This is not the promised land. You're still traveling there. You're still pilgrimage. You're still traveling along the way. Pliable, so famously, when he fell into the slough of the spawn, says, is this the way that the path is? If it's this way in the beginning, what will the end be? He drew a false conclusion. If I have all this trial and tribulation for being a Christian now, then what must be the end result of all this? And he thought, nothing. But the truth is, this present pain is not worthy to be considered when we think about the eternal weight of glory that it's producing. Christ is bringing us from one state of glory to another. 
Recently, I was reading a book, and it said something that was striking. It said that as we go through this sanctification, God is preparing us as a people for heaven. And it was kind of striking to me because generally, generally, I think it doesn't matter how holy you become. You're just going to be taken to glory and be transformed into his image. So it doesn't matter if you're a little bit holy or a lot of bit holy. It really doesn't matter. As long as you die in the Lord, you will be fully sanctified. And that's true, by the way. There are different levels of Christians and different levels of maturity. But when we get there, we'll all be like him. So it makes, because of that reality, it almost makes it seem like progressive sanctification, as we were talking about, is not that important. Well, that's your logic, but not God's logic. God's normal way of bringing us to glory is progressively sanctifying you on this earth so that you become more and more holy, and then he'll finish the work at the very end. But Christ's normal way of transforming you into his image is piece by piece, inch by inch, one ounce of glory by one ounce. And that's what he's doing. He's preparing us for that heavenly city. And so back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, in light of the fact that we haven't yet arrived and that there's a future rest, how should we then live? We'll look to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 and look at the latter part. It says, let us fear lest any of you have seemed to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. So in light of the fact that there's a yet a future rest, we are supposed to fear. Do you see that? The fact that salvation and our heavenly home is still out there, that's supposed to result in us fear. Now, why are we supposed to be afraid? Well, it tells us, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Because future salvation is still out there, some of you might not make it. That's what he's saying. Some of you who are professing believers, I'm not talking about unbelievers here, who are professing believers, because you haven't got to the other side of this, may not actually end up on the other side of that, and that should produce fear. Now, that may be shocking, but that's actually what our pastor says. Look, look to the verse. Because yet salvation is future, let us fear lest any of you come short of it. And then he goes on in verse 2, says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. And he's talking about the wilderness generation. They heard the gospel. In fact, they were certainly the people of God. Can you imagine? I just want you to, for a second, thought experiment. Go imagine you are the wilderness generation, and you have seen Moses, and you have Miriam, and you have Aaron, and you have seen all of the mighty works of God. God has spared you from the 10 plagues. You've seen God strike down the Egyptians. You've seen the Red Sea. You have the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You saw the Red Sea split open. You walked and were sprayed by the water. You saw when Pharaoh's army tried to chase you and watched them drown. You're currently eating the manna. You had the quail. You get the idea? There's no doubt in your mind that you belong to the people of God. There's not multiple denominations. There's none of that thing going on. You have no doubt this is God's people, and I'm part of them, right? Would you have any doubt? I wonder if I'm in the right place. I wonder if this is really God. No, you would know for sure that this was God's people. And yet, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Just turn over a little bit. Look at verse 16 and 17. For who having heard rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? 
Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? So who were they? They were the people of God, as I just said. And they heard, and it did them no good. They rebelled in their hearts. They would not enter the promised land, and they did not enter the promised land. You remember the story. They all died out there in the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews and other people, like Paul, are saying, look to that wilderness generation and make sure that you don't end up like them. Because just because they were part of the right people of God, just because they had the right pastor and they were with the right church and had the right denomination and had the right creed and believed all the right things, and just because you're part of that group doesn't mean that you're going to end up in the promised land. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? What value is it? Zero value at all. So in light of that, in light of the fact that you haven't crossed the finish line, let us fear. One day you won't have to fear. You know when? When you look over and see Jesus. You won't have to fear then. You'll know, I made it. I did it. Better yet, he did it. I'm here. I'm safe. You won't have to fear. But now, let us fear. Now, for some of you, fear is a four-letter word. Some of you get that. It actually is a four-letter word, but not one of those four-letter words. It's a good word, like love. Fear is actually a good thing. We are to fear. Pop psychology doesn't like this. Self-esteem doesn't like this. Our culture doesn't like the word fear. But you know, fear is actually a good thing. You're supposed to fear. Our text says, let us fear. Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring how long? Until the new covenant comes. doesn't say that. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere, it says it's the beginning of wisdom. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Some of you don't fear God enough. That's just 100% true. You do not fear God enough. And if you are a false believer, that's definitely you. You definitely don't fear God enough. Fear is a good thing. But even for believers, you want to be wise? Fear God. You want to depart from evil? Fear God. Let us fear. Psalm 19.11 says, By your word, your servant is warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. You need to fear. You need to fear the right things and not fear the wrong things. Because fear is a warning of danger. Does anybody see that? You're afraid of a danger. And fear of that danger actually protects you from that danger in the first place. I'll give you an example. So recently, I went from having no power tools to having multiple power tools. And power tools are scary. If you've never used a power tool, be careful. These things are dangerous. And not just in the obvious way of chopping your finger off, something of that bodily limb falling off, or something of that sort. That is dangerous, and I've nearly done that too. But there are other dangers that you don't expect, such as something called kickback. Does anybody know what kickback is? Any power tool users? If you don't, you don't know what this is. If you do, you need to, especially if you use one, because kickback can hurt you. Kickback is when the thing comes back at you. And various different power tools, kickback will occur different ways. Sometimes the instrument itself comes back at you. You cut in this way and it comes back this way. Sometimes with certain tools, pieces of wood will fly back. It'll kick back the wood back at you. 
I was watching a video about this, and a guy was using a table saw, and he normally said that he used some safety glasses, but he said he was being lazy that day and decided, I'm just going to cut a few pieces. It's not a big deal. And so he was cutting, and he had kickback, and a piece of wood came missling into his eye, sending him straight to the hospital with a huge permanent eye damage. Well, after watching that video, I decided I'm going to make sure I wear safety glasses. You see that? Because I like my eyes. They're already damaged enough. I already have to wear glasses. I don't want even more damage to my eyeballs. See, there's a fear there. You have a power tool. You realize that there's a danger called kickback. You have the warning, and then you try to mitigate those warnings. Fear is a good thing. We should fear the right things and not fear the wrong things. And so here, we are to fear a very real danger. And that very real danger is this that we could be part of the people of God outwardly, but not part of the people of God inwardly, that we could be wolves in sheep clothing, that we could be self-deceived. How horrible would it be for somebody in this room to think that they're a believer and everybody else to think that they're a believer, but ultimately you're not a believer and you're headed to hell? See, for me, it's one thing to deceive me. It's one thing to deceive your friends. It's one thing to deceive your spouse. I'm not saying that's good. Don't do that. But it's one thing for you to deceive other people. The worst reality is when you deceive yourself. When you yourself believe that you're a believer, but in fact, you are not. You have convinced yourself that you're saved, but in fact, you are going to hell. And this text is warning that those people do exist and that they are here among us. It is doubtful that there's not at least one false believer here. It's possible, but doubtful. And why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, when Paul is about to leave the church, he warns them of certain things. And here's what he warns them of. He says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That savage wolves would arise. Weeds will come for you gardeners. You know that. No matter how much mulching you do, weeds will show up. You do nothing, weeds show up, right? That's what church discipline is about. It's about finding the weeds and plucking them out because they will show up. They will rise from among you. False believers show up, they always do, and you have to get rid of them. And so we need to be afraid lest you are the false believer, not just your neighbor. You shouldn't just be worried, I wonder if they're a false believer. No, this is for you, not for them. You have to look at your own heart and say, am I a false believer? Am I merely going through the motions? Or do I have a saving relationship with God? So what was the problem with the wilderness generation? And how do you make sure that you are not them? Well, look to verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to them as well as to us. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith with those who heard. The problem with the wilderness generation is that they were disobedient people who heard the gospel, but when they heard it, it was not mixed with faith. They didn't receive it. They didn't believe it. They didn't embrace it. You see the same thing in verse 18 of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? We see they could not enter because of unbelief. The problem is, it was not mixed with faith, but rather it was mixed with unbelief. James says it very clearly. 
be not just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And what does the word call you? What does the gospel call you? If you're preaching the gospel to someone, you should not just give them the facts. Here's the facts, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again. Three days later, he ascended on high, and he's coming back in glory. If you preach the gospel like, like that, you have failed to preach the gospel. That is not the gospel. That's most of the gospel. You have failed to do something very essential, which is namely, you have not commanded and called people to repent. The Bible says repent and believe in the gospel. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. Christ isn't just telling you facts, take it or leave it. You command men to be reconciled to God. And so to be a doer of the gospel is to repent, to receive, to believe, and to be saved. Simply knowing facts, simply knowing the gospel, simply being able to present the gospel doesn't mean that you actually have embraced and accepted and been saved by that gospel. I can tell you a really, really sad story. I know someone who used to be a evangelist. They used to go around spreading the good news. They were more of an apologist that were defending the faith. But same basic idea. They were a minister, and they were a reformed minister, and they abandoned their faith. And I still see them sometimes still defending reformed theology. They'll still passionately defend reformed theology and Calvinism against all those weak, watered-down, all the derogatory comments you can think of of non-Calvinists, and they still defend Reformed theology against non-Calvinists, and yet they themselves are an apostate. That's disgusting. Can you imagine? You reject God, but you still, because you're such a theological nerd who likes to quarrel with people, will still defend Reformed theology against those who reject it. But you reject the God of Reformed theology. Sad. I know another apostate who said to me, I know that I am saved. If I asked you, do you know you're saved? What would you say? Are you saved? How do you know you're saved? What would you say? Hopefully, it would say something like this. It's because I'm looking to that cross. I realize I'm a sinner. I receive Jesus in my life, and I know his word is true, which says, whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life, and I know that I believe. That's the right answer. You know what he told me? I know that I'm saved because I'm reformed, and nobody who's an unbeliever could ever receive reformed theology. That's the wrong answer. Do you know that person Shortly thereafter, became an apostate and is headed to hell. So if you think, I know that I'm saved because I'm reformed, or I go to a good church, or I know these facts, or I can debate people about theology, or I believe in six-day creation, or anything, but I'm resting in Christ, you're on the pathway to hell. Or at least you certainly don't know the right answer. The right answer isn't knowing the facts, but embracing those facts and receiving Jesus And we see there in verse 3, but we who believed have entered that rest. We can enter that rest by believing, not by church attendance. There are two destinies. There are two pathways. There is the broad way that leads to hell. Broad is the way that is going to hell, and many there are that find it. That means this. If you're like the world, you're going to go with the world, and the world's headed to hell. So if you go out there and find community with all the people out there, you're going to be with all the people out there, and they're not going to heaven. But Jesus says, narrow is the gate, and few there are that find the way of salvation. So if you completely fit into the world, you're probably not saved. 
because Christians are strangers and pilgrimage, and they're a odd people. Their values are different than the values of the people out there. They live differently than the people out there. They believe differently than the people out there. There are few that find the way of salvation. You're on some pathway. What highway are you on? The broad way or the narrow way? Think about that wilderness generation. Many in that wilderness generation, in fact, most of them ended up dying in the wilderness, didn't they? How many people actually entered into the promised land from that wilderness generation? Very few, because most of them did not believe. In Proverbs fourteen twelve, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way ends in death. So the, here's the question. What road are you on? Are you on the road to heaven because you hear, receive, and believe the truth? Or are you on the road that leads to hell? Well, one day you have fellowship and community with God, Well, one day you have fellowship and community with Satan. It's all about whether or not you receive and believe and whether or not you have proper fear of the Lord, that you fear lest you do not enter. Real quick, and then we'll be done. Look to verse 3 through verse 9. And I'm not going to read that section, but you can glance over it. That section is a little bit confusing to be honest. If you read it, it's a little bit difficult to follow it point by point, so I'm not going to try, especially in the few minutes that I have left. But here's the broad overview of what that passage is saying. The first thing is that God finished his work from the foundation of the world, that in six days God created the world, not six billion years, not six eons, not six minutes, not six seconds or months, but rather God created the world in six days. And this is actually important. You think, what what importance is that? Who cares? No, the Bible actually makes a big deal out of the fact that God created the world in six literal days. And what deal does it make? It's about the seventh day. Because God worked six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And this created a pattern that he then calls people made in his image to imitate. And we see that in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, he rested and hallowed that day. And now he calls you to work six days. And then on the seventh, you too are to rest in pattern of him. So that's the idea. God created the world in such a way that we could imitate him. And the Sabbath was made for man. It's a blessing to imitate God in this way. Man was created to work. Man was created to rest. Six days he shall work and the seventh he shall rest. If you do all resting, that's not good for you, except if you're on vacation. And vacation isn't five years long. Vacation is a few days. Maybe if you've really been working along, I'll give you a month. But eventually you need to get back to work. You need to be industrious. You need to do something. You need to contribute in some way. So that's one way that we can break that Sabbath command is by refusing to work. Six days you shall work. You need to work. That's the idea. But you can also break the Sabbath command by refusing to rest, to be resting in God and just resting. Coming to church, worshiping with his people, six days you shall work and the seventh you shall rest. So that's point number one, that God created the Sabbath at creation. And he rested and he gives us a model. But the point of the author of Hebrews is he notices that even though he rested from creation, he tells people in the wilderness generation, they will not enter his rest. They won't enter that rest. 
which implies that they could have, and some people do. Then later on in the psalmist, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so the idea, his point is saying this, that that Sabbath rest is still open. You can still enter into God's Sabbath rest now. And he's saying, do that. Do not harden your heart against the things of God. I'll tell you for me, when I was younger, when I would sin, I was terrified that God would strike me down with a lightning bolt, that I'd be driving, my brakes wouldn't go, and I'd fly off a bridge. I thought that God, in sinning, would just harm you and hurt you and punish you in that way. But he does do that sometimes. But the number one way that God, you can see this if you look at Romans chapter 1, the number one way that God punishes you is by giving you over to your sin. That's what I'm afraid of now. Not the lightning bolt. The lightning bolt will take me to heaven. I don't want broken legs. But the main thing, and the more trustworthy thing, and the thing that almost guarantee will happen, and if you look at your own heart, you can see this, that your sin will lead to a hardened heart. And there's nothing worse than a hardened heart that's hardened to the things of God. Don't have a hardened heart. If you're an unbeliever, don't have a hardened heart. If you're feeling God's tugging, as I was preaching that gospel, if you're thinking, yeah, that's me, nobody knows it, or maybe they do, but I don't care. Repent. Because you cannot be soft forever. If you resist God's truth, your heart will go hardened. And even as a believer, some of you, you know who you are, there's something in the Bible that's telling you to do certain things and you refuse to listen. God's word says this, but you say, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to obey. I don't care what God says. You may not verbalize it that way, but your lifestyle certainly is that way. Don't continue to harden your heart because God will give you over. And you'll go to places that you never thought you'd be. And you'll stay much longer than you ever wanted to be. Do not harden your heart to God's truth. Be tender to him. Listen to his spirit. Repent and receive his truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you. We thank you that so many of us in this room, even as believers, have hardened our hearts. That we're no better than the apostate. Without you, we would have been them. We've been there. We've done those things. But you drew us back. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask that just as we all can say, Lord, I was the chief of sinners, but you broke my heart and you broke so many hearts in this room. I pray that there are yet hardened hearts here among us. We ask you to break their hearts. We ask you to let them receive your spirit so that they can be born again. We want to hear those testimonies of people who were lost and that everyone thought that they were saved, but they weren't and they knew it. Well, at least you open their eyes so that they could see and that they would be born again, changed, and come testify, even in this very pulpit, that they've been redeemed. Lord, be with us. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.